0: Term, a podcast for the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me as usual is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey Jimmy, how's it going?
1: It's going well, Natalie, and I guess not as usual. We're recording on Friday just because it's been a pretty busy week, right? So that we had a ton of opinions.
0: Yeah, yesterday was like a little crazy. It's like they were stockpiling them, I guess. And we just had a whole run of opinions. I, I think it was like the biggest opinion day in terms of sheer numbers of opinions that we've seen this term and frankly in a while.
1: That's right. There were five, the biggest opinion days so far this term, um, none last week, hence why we didn't record an episode in case listeners were wondering why. Um, but let's just kind of rattle some of them off. Uh, we're going to spend you know a little bit more time on focusing on one of these cases, but in case listeners wanted to know a little bit about what else was decided, the court um, in one of the cases revived a California man's lawsuit asking a Spanish museum to return a painting that the Nazis stole from his great-grandmother. So the court found um, that a lower court's decision to apply Spanish law to the case, as opposed to uh, California law, was actually incorrect. And uh, this basically is going to, this was a victory for the heirs of you know, this J- Jewish art collector who is seeking to repatriate this kind of famous Impressionist painting from the Spanish museum.
0: Yes, the latest, I feel, um, in Nazi art cases we've seen at the court over the last few years. Um, In another opinion handed down yesterday, Austin, Texas scored a win uh, when the justices in a 6-3 ruling said that their rule allowing businesses to um, have digital billboards on some premises but not on other premises was agnostic as to the, the content, so therefore it doesn't run afoul or warrant strict scrutiny under the First Amendment.
1: So basically, you know, uh, I know a lot of advertisers had sued, they wanted to digitize some existing billboards. Austin said you can't. And the Supreme Court says that's not a violation of the First Amendment.
0: Exactly. Um, The court also declined, though, to toss the murder conviction of a man who was shackled in front of a jury during the proceedings where he was convicted. Um, This ruling gave deference to state courts on evaluating whether a trial error like that, and it was deemed trial error um, through the through lower courts uh, whether that was unduly influenced the outcome.
1: And for the huge blockbuster decision, uh, we had a decision <laughs> on equitable tolling and tax cases that the 30-day deadline to file petitions to the US Tax Court is in fact a non-jurisdictional rule that is subject to equitable tolling means meaning in some circumstances it can be waived. Just kidding. That was not the blockbuster this term. But we, we you're are
0: joking. G- but that one involved a law firm, and I was heavily interested in that one.
1: That was a good one. But but yeah. of the five, I I can probably say that the one that caught my attention the most was a case called uh, United States versus Valle Madero. We've talked about this case on the podcast before with our senior Florida reporter, Carolina Bellato. It involves uh, 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 federal benefits for residents of Puerto Rico. So Natalie, tell me about what the Supreme Court held yesterday.
0: So basically the top line is that Puerto Ricans can be excluded from certain federal benefits. In this in this instance, supplemental security, income, disability benefits. Um, in an eight-to-one decision with the majority opinion written by Justice Kavanaugh, the court said that Congress can treat the territories differently and exclude them from, from that benefits program for tax and benefits purposes if there's a rational basis for it. You know, Puerto Ricans typically are exempt from a variety of federal taxes. They do pay, pay uh, you know, certain taxes, Social Security, Medicare, um, unemployment, but there's some other federal taxes that they don't pay um, or are not required to. Um, so the the majority found that, you know, this is a rational basis to deny the SSI benefits, essentially.
1: And there was that one single solitary dissent?
0: Yes. Uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who is of Puerto Rican descent, um, you know, dissented and her arguments leaned heavily on the fact that SSI benefits are not jurisdiction based. So they're not like so some benefits programs, you know, they're calculated based off where you live, right? Either how much you get or how much your state and jurisdiction gets in terms of the budget for the program. It's all dependent on the jurisdiction and geography. Um, This is a need based program. And it's, you know, and it doesn't matter where you live as long as you qualify, um, so she raised concerns, actually, that the decision kind of opens the door to states who don't pay sufficient taxes being able to be excluded from such programs under this kind of reasoning. Um, I will note Justice Kavanaugh in a footnote at the very end of his uh, majority opinion was like, we are not saying that <laughs> we, we are not like basically said we, we do not open the You know, we are not ruling on that question. Right. It's not asked here.
1: And that was basically a big argument of one of the parties to this case, Vallejo Madero, who's being sued for, you know, paying back all the SSI benefits that he allegedly received improperly, whose attorney was basically arguing that, yeah, Puerto Ricans, okay, maybe they don't pay these federal income taxes, but they pay lots of other taxes, in in, in some cases more than some U.S. states, and so can the government just exclude, you know, uh, states from benefits programs depending on how much they actually pay? And I guess you're saying that Kavanaugh says, no, we're not getting quite, that far and i I should point out it was a pretty short opinion
0: yeah it it was a short opinion um i think only like six or seven pages i will also point out with madero um you know it should be noted he originally lived uh for a good time in new york and Mm -hmm. started receiving the ssi benefits and they were cut off essentially when he moved back to puerto rico um One other interesting thing to note, though, uh, there were some concurrences. Um, You know, Justice Thomas wrote a concurrence uh, that I think was longer than the the majority opinion. (laughs) Um, Don't actually quote me on that, though. I should have did the calculations. Uh, But Justice Gorsuch also had a really interesting concurrence. Um, You know, so a lot of kind of the basis of the arguments being made or the, the kind of foundation to which this Madero's attorney and uh, the government were talking about um, rests on the so-called insular cases from about a century ago, where the court uh, set a precedent ruling that, you know, the government could rule Puerto Rico and other territories without regard to the U.S. Constitution. You know, both parties kind of came to the table here in this case, kind of accepting that, and did not challenge those insular cases. And Justice Gorsuch made a point to lay out that you know he thinks that's wrong that you know these insular cases have no foundation in in the constitution and rest instead on racial stereotypes and that they deserve no place in our law and you know because it's not challenged here you know he ruled with the majority but he's like this is an issue and you know he he, he didn't do kind of the classic you know uh, should a case come up or be presented to us with this issue, you know, we we should take it up. But but he essentially, you know, was talking, I think, out to the world, saying like, hey, this this is a This is something that should be challenged.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So I went ahead and looked, and and you're right. Justice Thomas's concurrence clocked in at 15 <laughs> 30, so more than twice the length of the majority opinion in the case. So y- your your calculations were were spot on there.
0: Um. So yeah. So big opinion writing day. For, for the justices, I'm sure I'll kick off um, hopefully some more as we wait. We're waiting for, for quite a few uh, over the next few months. But, Jimmy, let's turn to next week, to arguments. Um, I know you're watching one that's coming down on Monday, uh, and we're going to spend our, our main segment here talking about it. It's a First Amendment case um, huge that has huge implications for religious activity on school grounds. Um, it centers on a Washington high school football coach who claims he was fired for praying at football games, a controversy that became a national news story and sparked outrage um, toward the local school district that was perceived as being hostile to religion. Um, But Jimmy, uh, you've, you've come to the table here. You say that there's a lot more to this story and I'm excited to kind of dig into it.
1: Yeah, so for eight years, Joe Kennedy, he was the assistant football coach for Bremerton High School. This is a public school. It's in a small city, across from Seattle on the Puget Sound, and Kennedy himself, who is the petitioner in the Supreme Court case, you know, he graduated from this high school in the late 80s before serving in the Marine Corps for two decades, and he's talked in the past about being a troubled youth before finding purpose through his faith and basically how important it is to be, you know, a role model to to these young people. And so after the job he says he made a promise to himself that he would give thanks to God for the opportunity to coach, you know, these young football players by praying at the end of games. So he begins this tradition of kneeling at the 50-yard line in prayer. And at first he's he's by himself, but over time, you know, student players actually asked to join him, to which he kind of responds, you know, it's a free country. And so that's exactly what happens they join him and over time it becomes this broader tradition where after games coach Kennedy is leading a group of uh, of students in prayer after football games at the 50 yard line this is a public school mind you
0: that sounds like a pretty strong visual I know you know football high school football is kind of a, a, a huge thing in in many parts of this country um, you know what do these look like
1: yeah so I don't know Natalie how many Friday night uh, high school football games you went to, but you're right that they're they're pretty big spectacles. There's hundreds of students in the stands. Uh, there's, you know, lots of players. And so under the bright lights, um, after shaking hands, you know, with all the players, the, uh, the Bremerton Knights, as they're called, you know, they would gather around Coach Kennedy at midfield and he would over time give these short speeches that mixed religious themes with motivational ones. He would discuss things like sportsmanship and hard work and faith, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
0: So you say this went on for years, though, without controversy. How did this finally blow up?
1: Yeah, so this went on for about seven years until the fall of 2015, when the kind of the lid blows off the whole thing, and that's actually when Coach Kennedy invites the coach of another team to join him with his, you know, post-game prayer tradition. Uh, so that coach ends up mentioning it to Bramerton high school's principal now ironically he was actually saying that this was like a really cool thing and that he was surprised that they allowed these religious observances after football games but you know according to the school district this is the first time that they found out about this practice despite it having gone on for the better part of a decade um and so when the football games (laughs) i guess not this is of course what they say in their court papers um but this this by by learning about it, by the school district actually learning about it, this marks the beginning of the end of Coach Kennedy's football coaching career at Bremerton. How so? Okay, so this is the fall of 2015, and um, before the next game, uh, Coach Kennedy is approached by the athletic director at Bremerton who tells the, the you know him and the coaching staff to stop this prayer practice. But he goes on and, and, and continues doing this, uh, this prayer practice, Huddle at the end of games, and you know he sees a school official shaking his head in disapproval, and he goes home and posts on Facebook. I think I might have just been fired for praying. So this kicks off this hornet's nest, you know. He's a popular coach at the school, and uh, the the school district is inundated with calls and, and and emails from from Kennedy supporters. So you know, a few days later, the school superintendent writes Coach Kennedy a letter to get him to stop these prayer circles after games. He can pray silently to himself. He can even pray where students can see him, but they cannot pray together. Uh, Now, this is where things kind of get interesting. So for the next month, uh, Coach Kennedy heeds those commands. So at first, you know, he does this motivational speech um, where he kind of drops all the religious references And then he kind of prays by himself without students around. But sometime during the month of September 2015, he retains lawyers from a conservative group called the First Liberty Institute. And a few days before the school's homecoming game in October, his lawyers write a letter to the school demanding the school to basically rescind the superintendent's earlier prohibition on these these prayers and saying that he was he was going to continue this practice so after the homecoming game on october 16th coach kennedy decides to resume his practice of praying at half field now natalie the reason why i'm kind of going into so much depth about this is because the facts of this case are kind of in dispute what exactly happened is could potentially influence the outcome so let's focus in on this homecoming game on october 16th now According to Coach Kennedy's lawyers, the coach waited until his team were occupied in another part of the field with their traditional fight song with 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 other students, and so they weren't actually around him. Okay. Yeah. So, but seeing him take the fifty-yard line, um, seeing Coach Kennedy take the fifty-yard line, a crowd of his supporters you know, his cause basically at, the, in, at this point has been in the news for like, you know, the better part of a month. And so he's got a lot of support in the press and in the public for these demonstrations. And so when they see him take the field, there's kind of this like very frenzied excitement in the crowd and people are basically rushing to join him around the 50-yard line in prayer. So this includes the the players on the other football team. And so, there's a video actually uploaded to YouTube by the Kitsap son of Coach Kennedy kind of bowing. This time he's silent, he's not saying anything, but he's he's kneeling in prayer silently, surrounded by this kind of crush of, of supporters, including students from from the opposing football team. And afterwards, he kind of gives remarks that I said are uploaded by, by the Kitsap son to YouTube, that we have a clip here. I was not gonna include my kids because I would never jeopardize those young men that are out there because that's what this is about and that just proves faith that you know and solidifies all my beliefs that you know i've been doing the right thing with the kids and that they come out here and they support me and it's, it's like what do you do with that uh, you know at school district, sorry that whatever happens happens you know but I'm, I'm gonna be bold in my faith and i'm gonna fight the good fight so he didn't
0: actively call Folks, over to join him, but he's defying the school district here, right?
1: Yeah, that's what the school district says. I mean, the K- Kennedy's lawyers are focusing in on that point that you just mentioned. He's not actively soliciting um, students to join him in prayer. Um, of course, the school district responds that you know he's 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 in the press often, basically broadcasting that he's going to be fighting the good fight. In any event, um, Coach Kennedy, after this homecoming game, he does the same thing over the next few games until he is placed on administrative leave by a by a school district that considers him to be in violation of school policy. Now, as you can imagine, this does not make the issue go away. He keeps attending games as a spectator, he's leading prayer circles from the stands, you know, with his lawyers at his side, he he goes on this kind of national media campaign and his story picks up headlines across the country, especially on Fox News where he's interviewed. Um, and along the way he he and his attorneys emphasize this this kind of this narrative, right? That he is just a coach that wanted to say a small quiet prayer by himself after the games on the field. Fifteen, maybe thirty seconds in silent prayer From the stands, okay. you wouldn't have been able to tell but that's I just kept f- praying by myself, but I never again prayed with any of the You're kids not promoting a the certain system. religion. No. Just a philosophy of Christianity.
2: Kennedy. Was fired for holding post-game prayers.
1: Uh, I was fired for taking a a silent prayer um, alone on the football field. You're not
2: pushing this on your players. Where are your? Coach Kennedy
1: can be fired. Then, really, no job is safe. Especially God
2: forbid someone see you pray. I mean, my goodness.
1: I'm not going to hide who I am. I'm not going to hide my faith.
0: So it seems like in the court of public opinion, Kennedy's making this case and a lot of people are standing by him. He's getting a lot of attention. Kennedy ended up suing. How did that play out?
1: So he loses. First, the district court denies his request for a preliminary injunction against the school district. And that denial was affirmed by the Ninth Circuit. So on appeal, the Ninth Circuit basically explains that a reasonable observer could conclude that Coach Kennedy was acting in his official capacity during these prayers, and thus violating the Establishment Clause of the Constitution, which says that the government can't establish an official religion. And we have a clip here of the Ninth Circuit questioning the narrative that Coach Kennedy's lawyers have emphasized throughout the case.
0: The only practice we seek to vindicate here is that of Coach Kennedy to kneel silently and pray by himself for 15 seconds on the field. What does that mean? Uh, when you say by himself, the school district had, I think um, their their briefing certainly argues that they had agreed to an accommodation, which is that Coach Kennedy could engage in this prayer after the players had been dismissed from the locker room and after the fans had gone home. So basically when the stadium wasn't full of people anymore. And now you're saying, you're characterizing this as a, 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 a silent prayer where he where he is alone, but alone surrounded by the fans in the stand
1: now he appeals to the supreme court which denies his first appeal so then it gets remanded back to the district court which grants summary judgment to the school so he loses again and the ninth circuit once again affirms and denies a petition for on banc rehearing. hearing but this time on appeal the supreme court decides to take up his case
0: has he changed his arguments
1: The arguments are largely the same. So the argument that Kennedy has emphasized throughout his petition and his briefing is that by refusing to allow Coach Kennedy to say what his lawyers have called a brief, quiet prayer by himself... The school district has violated his rights under the free speech clause and the free exercise clause of the of the First Amendment, as well as Title VII's workplace protections against religious discrimination. They say Kennedy was fired for his simple refusal to stop kneeling by himself at the fifty yard line after games in observance of his faith. Um, you know that students and supporters decided to join him. Coach Kennedy says should not mean that he should be barred from praying. these accommodations that we talked about when the superintendent says, you know, you can pray, um, but you just can't be joined by students. According to Coach Kennedy, the school district was essentially telling him to pray in secret. And I spoke to one of his lawyers, uh, Stephanie Taub, who explained why he felt that those accommodations were not up to snuff.
2: So all Coach Kennedy wants to do is to say a brief, quiet, personal prayer after games, and the school district recognized that after the district had told him not to involve students in in coach's religious activity he complied so this case is about coach's right to engage in a personal in a personal brief quiet 15 to 30 second prayer after games now what about the school district what are
0: they say
1: it's really interesting because not every day do you see in the briefing to the Supreme Court accusations that the other side has completely misrepresented the case. And that's what the school district is saying here. They're they're jumping on, you know, the 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 questions of the Ninth Circuit. In particular, there was a there was a concurrence from a Ninth Circuit judge that accused Kennedy of spinning a deceitful narrative. And and that's really what the school district says Coach Kennedy is doing in this case. When he says he wants a brief, quiet prayer by himself, that, according to the school district, is completely untethered from what actually happened. And so here's Rachel Lazer. She's the president of Americans United for the separation of church and state, which is the group that is leading the school district's legal defense in the case.
2: Coach Kennedy's lawyers, backed by extremists and their lawmaker allies, and I'm talking about a shadow network worth about a billion dollars, is spinning a deceitful narrative and those are the words of a Ninth Circuit appellate judge who was appointed by George W. Bush, that he is claiming that all that he wanted wants to be able to do is to pray in a private and solitary way. But This is utterly belied by the facts. Those are more words from the lower courts on this case who were warning the Supreme Court about this deceitful narrative, that in reality, a coach that heads, immediately after the game, right after the handshake to the motivational time when there's a team huddle to close out the game and holds uh, you know, a visible and obvious prayer practice, he's pressuring those students to join.
1: Now, Natalie, remember how I've said multiple times that Coach Kennedy's legal team is really emphasizing this point that Kennedy's not asking the students to join him. And so, you know, he's saying that he's not pressuring anyone to join him. Remember that first, you know, response that he has to the students. It's a free country. Um, they're they're simply doing so of their own accord. So when I when I spoke to Rachel about this, she said that that is not only contradicted by the facts of the record, but by the simple, you know, reality of what it means to be a student on a team in a high school, where a coach wields, you know, a, a position of respect and authority and that these young impressionable kids are likely going to feel some subconscious or conscious pressure to join in in what is essentially this team building exercise. And we actually have in the record of the case a deposition from a school district official who says that a unnamed parent of a player who is an atheist had complained that his son felt compelled to join these prayers out of a fear of being deprived playing time. So you have Coach Kennedy's um, kind of insistence on the one hand that this is completely up to the students of what they choose to do. And then on the other hand, you have the school district making the argument that whether or not he's explicitly telling them or making it mandatory for them to join him, there is going to be just through the context of you know a football team and under the bright lights of the stadium in a huddle pressure for these students to join in this express religious activity.
0: This is such an interesting case because there's this important religious rights question right at the center of it, but then there's this also other drama as you've just like kind of talked us through of like the sides not even agreeing about the facts of the case. Um, what's at stake here ultimately?
1: Well, it depends who you ask. You know, I, I spoke to Stephanie, who told me that this case is about the religious rights of public school employees. Do they shed their constitutional rights when they walk into the school, walk through the schoolhouse doors? That's a phrase that the Supreme Court has used to defend the the, the rights of students and teachers. They say that it could, you know, a, a victory for the school district here which would mean an affirmance of the Ninth Circuit, would be bad news for the ability of public school teachers to engage in any religious activity while on duty. Now, I talked to Rachel Lasser, who unsurprisingly has a different take on what a Supreme Court ruling is going to do in the case. She says that teachers and coaches could pressure students to pray in every public school classroom, K-12, across the country, and that this could have a particularly harmful effect on minority and non-religious students. You know or potentially even christians that don't believe in this type of public prayer
0: it seems like this is a case where the justices may feel compelled to kind of put a new bright line um on where you know religious rights kind of butt up against the the official capacities of of a of a public figure here um and Th- this seems like a tough one. Like, where does where does something go from being private to being public? How many people do you see it? You know, where's kind of that that threshold? Did you get a sense from when you were ta- speaking with the attorneys about like what their arguments might be on on the- this front? Well,
1: the school district is really interested in using arguments next week as an opportunity to do what they say in their mind is correcting the record. But I agree that you know the justices are going to be really interested in where to draw that line you know where is it an acceptable place for a coach to pray versus when does it become unconstitutional it's a really interesting question because the school district is of course conceding that you know uh, there would be a way for coach kennedy to pray in a constitutional manner while on duty but the way that he was doing it under the 50 yard line under the bright lights during a football game surrounded by his coaches or surrounded by his players was not it. And so I'm fully prepared for the justices to spend a bulk of oral arguments and as we've seen in a number of cases this term just trying to find that line when does, you know, this this public display of religion become unconstitutional? And uh, you know, it's a, it's a, that is a tricky question.
0: I feel like we should be gearing up for a argument session full of hypotheticals. From uh, Justice Alito and Justice Breyer,
1: <laughs> I have I have no doubt about that, In particular, Justice Alito, because he he's one that people don't often you know consider to have the. He's not as famous as bringing the hypotheticals as Justice Breyer is, because maybe they don't use as many like zany details. But Justice Alito, I expect, as we've seen in a number of recent cases, he does like these rapid-fire hypothetical questions. Um, where he's really grilling the attorney on every possible iteration of the case to see what they're, how that, that, that test would work in that circumstance. So this is going to be a fascinating one to watch, and uh, I'm excited to see what the court says at oral arguments on Monday.
0: So let's tie up some loose ends, though, first. Um, this has been a long-running case. It's been over six years since Coach Kennedy last coached Bremerton High School's football team I understand he no longer resides in the state of Washington. What would the Supreme Court's ruling mean for him?
1: Well, to use kind of a bad pun, in his original complaint in federal district court, he includes what you have to do, which is include a prayer for relief. And in the case, he has said that not only does he want a, you know, a declaratory judgment that what the school district did in this case violated his constitutional rights, but he also wants to be reinstated as the assistant football coach at Bremerton high school. And yeah, this was, you know, uh, uh, more than six years ago at this point. Um, but you know, I spoke to Stephanie Taub, his lawyer, who says that he still very much intends on rejoining the coaching staff at Bremerton if, uh, he prevails in this case. So this saga might not be over just yet.
0: Well, I think it's a saga that I'll be interested to see how it plays out. Jimmy, uh, Thanks so much for running this down. I think that's about it for us this week.
1: That's right. Thanks, Natalie. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in this week.
0: We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Music for the show comes from Slenderbeats. For more information about all the high Court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law360 in the term. Thanks for listening.